From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's down to the wire to finalize a new map that shapes your representation in Congress. There are just so many different ways to group people together beyond maybe the most obvious communities of interest. There is absolutely no way to make everyone happy. Then, when a doctor or a teacher suspects child abuse, Colorado requires that they report that to the authorities. But the person in charge of child protection for the state is worried many mandatory reporters are confused. They believe that before they can call in suspected abuse or neglect, that they must have proof, right? Or they must be 100% positive. And that's just not the case. And a Crested Butte musician blends his work to help others with his love of bluegrass. If you don't want to deal with selling or fixing your car, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The donation process is safe and simple. You get rid of your unwanted vehicle, and you financially support CPR's news and music services. Vehicle donation revenue is an important source of funding for CPR. Find out how to donate your car on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado has a big deadline tomorrow. It's the last day for the redistricting commission to agree on a map to send to the court for approval. CPR's Binta Berglund is here to catch us up on that process. Hi, Binta. Hey, Avery. Binta, what happens if the commission can't agree? Right. The Congressional Redistricting Commission will then submit the most recent map that was drawn by nonpartisan staff. So this staff map does include the commissioner's guidance and it has input from the public. So it doesn't come out of nowhere, but submitting a staff plan is not what the commission wants to have happen. Why is it so hard for the commission to pick a map? First off, they need a supermajority of the commission to agree. So that's eight out of 12 commissioners, including the two unaffiliated members. So it's hard to get everyone on board with every detail. In recent days, commissioners have been working on tweaks to the staff map, trying to decide how to make changes to get as close as possible to an ideal map. Enough of them can back. And you can definitely hear how one change can shift someone's support because there are a lot of moving parts and criteria for the congressional maps. I would say the commission really does seem committed to trying to reach a compromise enough of them can get behind and to show that this independent redistricting process can work the way voters intended. Meantime, the reality of creating the congressional redistricting map is something like this. Marathon Zoom sessions, painstaking geographic descriptions, and slow struggle toward something like consensus. Benta, you and your CPR public affairs editor, Megan Verlee, pulled back the curtain on the final days of the Congressional Redistricting Commission's work to see how they're trying to get it done. Throughout this season of Purplish, we've been really trying to capture why redistricting matters and, and who it matters to. But at this stage in the process, it feels like it's really time to talk about 
process mm-hmm. uh, and how the commission is really actually doing the grueling work of trying to settle on a final map. Yeah. And so the last time we talked about redistricting maps on Purplish, we focused on the first staff plan and it had just come out. And that map really got everyone in the political world talking because it envisioned a pretty different way to draw the state's congressional seats compared to what we have right now. So it created this Southern Colorado congressional district. And then when you do that, it caused other things to shift. And that map actually split up parts of the western slope. Exactly. And now after lots more debate and lots of test maps being drawn, it feels like the commission sort of has two paths that can go down. Uh, It could go with this very radically redrawn southern district map. Mm -hmm. I have a printout of it here uh, that was made. This one's actually suggested by one of the commissioners that takes the whole southern part of the state into one district. But then the eastern plains and the western slope get split up uh, Mm -hmm. and get a lot more front-range votes in them. So that would be a really big difference from what there is now. Uh, The other vision, which I have also printed out, looks a lot more like the current congressional map and would be a more, uh, I think, conservative uh, approach, not politically, Uh but like just in terms of not radically redrawing things. And, you know, commissioners are to the point where they're going to have to pick one or another of these visions. And one of the big issues that these maps bring up is how do you represent rural Colorado? Because there is not enough population for some of these rural areas to be separated entirely from more urban places. And so where do you add that population and how do you add that population? How does that shift the political makeup and the communities of interest? Uh, You know, I just kind of find it crazy. We are less than a week from the committee's final deadline. And it doesn't feel like they have fully coalesced yet. They're still debating some pretty fundamental questions. Yeah, and that's something Commissioner Lori Schell spoke about during a recent commission hearing. She's one of the four unaffiliated commissioners. It would be great if we could target all of our amendments to one map. That may be impossible, but I'm, I'm, I'm putting it out there so that we can try and manage the chaos. Manage the chaos. I think that is <laughs> probably exactly what they're all trying desperately to do right now. And that really, like, what you're hearing from her gets back to what we said at the beginning, which is just how, like, complicated this process is. You've got a dozen people in little Zoom windows, mm-hmm. plus a bunch of staff. They're all looking at sort of these screen share presentations of little tiny map lines and little areas and and trying to sort out really conflicting things like, do you prioritize keeping the Roaring Fork Valley together? And if you do that, where does that push the lines over here? Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, they're all trying to do this while following Robert's Rules of Order, which is even even harder. I have to admit, and it's hard saying this to my editor, that I have not had time to watch everything the commission's been doing. I am totally okay with that. You know, if you are able to follow every meeting, I think you can see that transparency is a a major part of what these independent commissions are supposed to provide. The communication they're having among various commissioners is supposed to occur in public. Which is sort of fascinating if you realize that in this state until now, and in 
pretty much every state that's not using a commission. Mm -hmm. Which are the majority of states. It's state lawmakers drawing these lines. Exactly. And they're doing it behind closed doors with input from party officials to maximize party advantage while not looking like they're maximizing party advantage. And so all this stuff that that used to happen in secret is happening in these meetings. Now, different motives. They're trying to, Mm -hmm. to match the constitutional criteria, which do not favor partisan advantage. It's really different to watch people have to do this in public instead of just popping up and being like, "Okay, here's our map. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even though when state legislatures are doing it, they could take public input. That's kind of baked into this process. And, you know, I, I definitely have gotten a better sense of how people living in different parts of Colorado view their community in relation to, you know, who they feel like they're affiliated with and how they define kind of their sense of place. We get to see that in some of the public comments. Benda, you've been covering Colorado forever. So I'm curious, like, what did you learn about Colorado from this process that you didn't know? I would say that, I mean, nothing radical that we didn't anticipate, you know, that, you know, Fort Collins may not want to be with Weld County and Northwest Colorado doesn't want to be with Boulder in a district. But I do think that I just kind of reiterated and learned there are just so many different ways to group people together beyond maybe the most obvious communities of interest. And so I, I think the commissioners do have a tough job because there is absolutely no way to make everyone happy. It's interesting when you talk about communities of interest. I'm going to sneak in that that one that I'm a little fascinated by is one of the maps purports to be a headwaters map to, like, break up the state by river basins, mm-hmm. which is not a community of interest that gets talked about a lot. But putting on my nerd hat here, I think John Wesley Powell actually said that's how political lines should be drawn in the West. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's kind of what's fascinating about this, right, is, like, these guys get to decide what they think is an important community of interest, but then they have to convince other commissioners to join on, and they don't always. Yeah, and I think part of it, not that it comes from ulterior motives to benefit one party or the other, but certainly people who are advocating. I mean, this is a political process, right? So which community interest are you focusing on and how does that benefit you? And there was one part during a hearing where commissioners were going through all the public comments and uh, one person had separated them into just different categories and themes. And it was really helpful, actually. And they were looking at which comments were maybe more form letters using the same language and who they were coming from. And they were deciding how to value those comments, whether it's more organic or part of an organized campaign. That really goes back to some reporting you did early in this about the lobbying efforts that these commissioners have to try and figure out what is a concerted effort with a partisan lean and what is like an organic community that is trying to speak up for itself. How are they, how are they trying to parse that? I think that if, if things are coming from individuals, I don't think they're trying to say, you know, it's less valuable if you're a member of the Democratic or Republican Party and someone reaches out to you, know, you're a, a volunteer, you're really engaged. And it's like, hey, here's some language we're suggesting people use. And you're like, OK, sure, you may agree with that. Someone suggested it to you, but... That's what you support anyway. So I don't think they're trying to say, you know, that's less valuable than if a person just came up with that on their own. Interesting. Well, we're nerding out on the process and all of that. But I'm guessing that a lot of people listening really just have one overarching question, which is also the overarching question for the political minds in the state, which is when this is over, how many Republicans and how many Democrats will Colorado send to Congress? Yeah, (laughs) I think you're right. That's that's top of mind for us locally and nationally. And One of the kind of frustrating things about watching the redistricting process is that there is a delay 
in in crunching numbers on things like how competitive a district is. So the commission is required to consider competitiveness, but it's not one of the the top things they have to consider. So it falls lower on the list when they meet all this other criteria. But so when commissioners propose amendments and changes to maps, there's a delay before that information is available about what it does to the political makeup. Although when you listen to them, I think they talk about competitiveness quite a bit more than its profile in the list of criteria, which is Uh kind of interesting. Like they're clearly thinking about well, how many competitive districts would there be in this map versus that map? And then there's like a lag time before they even know really what they're talking about. Uh, I I watched one of these moments play out pretty late at night in one of their meetings where a Democratic commissioner has been really pushing his version of the map and one of the Republicans pushed right back at him. Problem with Commissioner DeFoy's plan is it makes all of the previously conservative districts competitive and further solidifies the ones that are not conservative. That is the epitome of partisan gerrymandering. You can bet my ears perked up when I heard one commissioner accuse another of partisan gerrymandering. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, Commissioner Tafoya, the Democrat, was very upset with that characterization. For him to accuse me of be of gerrymandering, that is absolutely offensive. And for him to say that this is that he wants these two things to be quote unquote competitive before communities of interest, before anything in the constitution, that is that is problematic. And what came next from this is this moment that captures like how much stress they're under, how difficult it probably is to work across party lines on this, and all the things that like they're balancing with each of these maps. Both of you. Hello, hello, hello. Is offensive. Hello. I'd ask for U.S. Chair to actually recognize that we should not be making those accusations to anybody. And that is what my uh, commission, Commissioner Leone. I will apologize to Commissioner Tafoya if he believes that that comment was personal. It was not. That was Commissioner Hare, the the woman you heard speaking there, who does chair the the commission. She's unaffiliated and clearly at times tempers run high after hours and hours and hours of meetings. Mm -hmm. You know, they mentioned that in that little exchange that where does competition rank in terms of the priorities the commission should be considering. So they are under these time constraints. And I think we all know when you have the deadline, that's when they have to get the work done. Not that they haven't been working really hard on it, but when you have that fast stop, it kind of makes it real that they've got to come up with something really soon. And what you hear from them also is a real understanding that they are the first commission to do this. And if they don't get to that supermajority and they just let a staff map go to the state Supreme Court, I think they'll feel that they failed. They carry that weight on their shoulders. And I think it will play out a lot in these final discussions and how much people are potentially willing to compromise with each other that they really want to be able to put their stamp on a map. CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee and Public Affairs Reporter Benza Berkwind and an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. That episode recorded last Thursday, and as we've noted, this process is very fluid. And Benza, on that podcast, you're focused on the congressional map, but this same process is happening with Colorado's state legislative maps too, right? Yes, that's right. And that process has a little longer to go because the deadlines are different, but it's happening in the same way. Nonpartisan staff drawing maps with commission and public input. That process is possibly even harder because we have 100 state house districts to draw. And we're keeping an eye on that as well. Benta, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland and the down-to-the-wire effort to map out Colorado's revised congressional districts. For many companies in Colorado, it seems like remote work is here to stay for at least a little while longer. That's not great news for coffee shops and other small businesses that rely on steady foot traffic downtown. CPR's Sarah Mulholland asks how small businesses are coping with ongoing shift away from the office. It's eerily quiet in the lobby of my office building for a Monday morning um, before the pandemic. It would have been really busy and there would have been a lot of hustle and bustle, people coming in to start their work week. Um, But now it's really just me and um, the guy who owns the coffee stand. I know you can hear yourself echoing the whole lobby. That's scary. That's Chin Ming Eng. He's been selling coffee and sandwiches and pastries to office workers at this spot a few minutes from the Capitol building in Denver for years. Right now it's about 10 o'clock. Normally I have about between 40 to 60 customers. Now, today, um, I haven't got one at all. Eng says the morning rush used to start at around 6.30. But these days, there's no morning rush. And there's no lunch rush. And no afternoon rush. Eng has cut his menu way down and doesn't stay open past 11 anymore. There's virtually nobody over here during lunchtime. The building is pretty much empty. The move to working remotely is a welcome change for a lot of people. They like the flexibility and not having to commute. It makes it easier to figure out childcare and saves money on things like parking and eating out. There's a lot to like about working from home. But it's been really hard for small business owners like Ang that need those people to stay afloat. Some businesses have already given up, and others aren't sure how much longer they can survive if people don't return to the office soon. Ang has been living mostly off of savings. He says building management thought more people would return after the July 4th holiday. Then people were supposed to come back after Labor Day. But he still hasn't seen any change. And from his conversations with the few customers he does see, he's not sure it will ever really go back to the way it was. Or at least not for a long time. Business will not be back to normal or be able to generate revenue for another, at least another year and a half to two years. I say 2023. There's high hopes that the vaccine will speed up a return to some semblance of normalcy for downtowns across the country. But according to data from the Downtown Denver Partnership, there were actually fewer people coming downtown in August compared to July. They blame the hot and smoky weather and the Delta variant for the drop in pedestrian traffic. Their report says there was a slight uptick in people returning to the office after Labor Day. But it's still nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. Jenny Scaff runs Vienna Dry Cleaners a few blocks from Eng's building. It's a family operation. Her sister is the owner. They've been in business for about 30 years and recently closed their original location, which was just around the corner. Scaff says it had been slow for a while. When the pandemic started, it was a good time to just say we're done with that store, that location. They weren't sure they were going to make it at all. They shut down for about six months. Things have picked up recently, but Scaff says hours are still cut back. The store is open 8 to 4 during the week. It used to be open 7 to 6.30. 
Like Ng, Scaff says the lack of office workers is the biggest problem. They're not getting their suits cleaned and their shirts laundered and all that stuff, so, or not as often. She's not sure what's next for the family business and for downtown generally. You know, I don't know. I, I know what I hope happens, but I don't know. I, I don't know, especially if the offices don't open back up. But there has been one bright spot for her business, a boom in weddings. Kelly Wilson is there to pick up her husband's tuxedo. <laughs> we have a bunch of weddings this fall, and so it's just on a constant repeat. <laughs> That's what I was just telling her. A lot of wedding clothes this year. Yes. That's helping yes. staff stay optimistic, despite the challenges. We're trying. we got to make it work. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. For business owners like Scaff, that's all they can do. And hope that maybe office workers will be back after New Year's. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. Some pandemic changes to the workforce are here to stay. It brought a wave of new robots and productivity software. What does acceleration of workforce automation mean for the economy? Join me at Denver Startup Week. I'll be speaking with David Brancaccio of Marketplace for the closing keynote session on October 7th. Events are in person and online next week. See the schedule at denverstartupweek.org. When a doctor, teacher, or therapist suspects child abuse, Colorado requires that they report their suspicions to authorities. But the person in charge of child protection for the state is worried many are confused about how exactly that they're supposed to do that. Recently, Child Protection Ombudsman Stephanie Villafuerte detailed those concerns in a report she released to the public. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Stephanie, thanks for chatting with me. Great. Thank you for having me today. The report begins with a case at Children's Hospital Colorado. Stories in the media say doctors and the hospital administration delayed a child abuse investigation and violated Colorado law. You use the story at the introduction to your report as an example, but you've said the case is best resolved in court. Will you explain who Olivia Gant was and what happened to her? You know, essentially, Olivia was a young child who died at age seven. The allegations are that her mother um, subjected her to what is typically known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, or when parents artificially create medical conditions in their children in order to get attention for themselves. In Olivia's case, you know, the media reports that she was subjected to hundreds, if not thousands of different medical treatments that were unnecessary, and that ultimately it was that that led to her death. According to media reports, what do they say didn't happen that should have specifically when it came to reporting the suspected abuse? You know, I think the biggest issue that's been raised by the popular media has been a question about whether Children's Hospital's mandatory reporting policy complied with state law. In their opinions, they believe, I think, that the hospital did not report as needed and that that could have led to or prevented her death. Uh, These are some of the concerns you have generally about uh, mandatory reporting and whether the law is being followed. Can you give me another example of a case where people who were supposed to report child abuse suspicions failed to? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, um, unfortunately, Colorado has a lengthy history um, of such cases. But, you know, you only have to look back as far as, say, 2018, where East High School principal failed to report a sexual assault that happened between two students. Before that, there was a case in Aurora at Prairie Middle School, where a principal failed to report allegations that a teacher had been having sexual relationships, not with one, but many students. Um, And so regretfully, Colorado is sprinkled uh, with incidents where mandated reporters have not taken their responsibility seriously. That isn't the case that we are really addressing in this brief. We're addressing all of those mandated reporters who want to do the right thing on behalf of kids, but are confused about how to do it. Right. Colorado and other states have laws around who is supposed to report. And I should say it's not just doctors, teachers, and therapists. It's a long list that includes pharmacists, members of the clergy, EMTs, and others. And they're supposed to call the child abuse hotline or their local government and report what they suspect. What's the most common problem that leads a case to go unreported? You know, one of the single biggest problems we see is that mandated reporters aren't clear on their role. For example, they believe that before they can call in suspected abuse or neglect, that they must have proof, right? Or they must be 100% positive. And that's just not the case. A reporter's job is to simply report. And then law enforcement or human service officials are the ones who actually will investigate whether that report has merit. And I think that's the single biggest holdup for mandated reporters to do the job that they would like to do. How much do these problems have to do with the mandatory reporters being fearful that if they're wrong, it can have really grave consequences for a family? Oh, I absolutely believe that one of the biggest problems we have in seeing abuse reports make it to the right authorities is that citizens are worried about getting it wrong, right? They don't want to falsely accuse a parent or a guardian of harming their child. But we often tell people, your job is not to investigate the allegations or to prove them. Your job is just to report and then let those authorities who are responsible actually assess those and take the necessary steps. And yet, can you say how often reports of suspected abuse are resolved without disrupting a family where this may not have happened? You know, I can't provide you statistics on that. But what I can tell you is that there are a large number of cases that are reported each year. And approximately a third of those will never be reviewed by authorities simply because the proof or the allegations um, just can't be corroborated. We always want to make sure that we are on the side of caution. We want to make sure that we are getting the reports that we need. But then again, letting people who are trained actually investigate those concerns. One of the other issues that the report points to is that sometimes the reporting gets sort of gummed up and folks who should report go to the administration and then it's a slow process where the administration tries to resolve the problem, say, at a hospital. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, institutional reporting is what we call a situation where an employee, so a hospital staff member or a teacher, for example, are required to go to their administration to make their mandated report as opposed to reporting it directly to authorities. And that's where we see a great deal of confusion. Uh, Mandated reporters get nervous, 
they're worried that if they make a report to their administrator, that perhaps the administrator may not correctly relay their information, or at the worst possible end, that their report is never made ever. So there are concerns that the more channels we push reports through, the more likelihood that it taints the information or the information doesn't get to where it needs to go. What if you're a regular citizen and you suspect child abuse? What should you do? Uh, You're not a mandatory reporter, but you're very concerned. We always tell people, citizens who are concerned, call 911. Just plain and simple. They are prepared to take that call and they will make sure that uh, somebody goes out to review the situation or the facts that you relay. I understand you're working to give more teeth to the law. What's the most important thing you'd like to change? Sure. I would say we need to clarify whose job it is to report abuse and neglect. Is it the individual? Or is it the institution that the individual works for, such as a school or a hospital or a daycare center? Because if we don't, we are going to continue to see a lack of important information make it to authorities who can review abuse concerns. There is nothing inherently wrong with institutions creating policies for employees to report abuse. In fact, institutions, hospitals, again, schools, they can provide support to their employees. This is a time-consuming process. It can be a scary one. And so there's nothing wrong with having policies. The real question is, we need to make sure that if such policies are in place, that there are guardrails around them, meaning the employer cannot then substitute their judgment for the person who witnessed the potential abuse. We've heard about Underreporting during the pandemic, children haven't interacted as much with people like doctors and teachers. How often do you think COVID and the resulting closures have led to abuse that could have been prevented? You know, I can't opine on whether more abuse happened during COVID, but what I can tell you is that school personnel are our number one mandated reporters in our state. They comprise the biggest bulk of reports because why? They have the greatest access to children. So of course, when they no longer had access to children, those reports went dramatically down. I think we have to be cautious though in then making the leap that abuse necessarily went up during that period of time because let's not forget, not all reports that are made to a human service agency necessarily result in actual proof of physical or sexual abuse. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Stephanie Villafuerte is the Child Protection Ombudsman for Colorado. She spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Villafuerte's office recently issued a brief on the need for people in authority to report suspicions of child abuse in a timely manner. Olivia Gant's family and Children's Hospital Colorado say that they resolved a $25 million civil lawsuit against the hospital that alleged abuse. Neither party will comment about the case. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The new thriller from Peter Heller is our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Heller started as a journalist writing about outdoor adventure. Now he's a best-selling novelist. Once you start making stuff up, you know, it's pretty tough to go back. I'm Ryan Warner. Pick up a copy of The Guide. Then join us for Thursday night's virtual event with the author. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Sponsored in part by Madison Taylor Marketing. 
Mushrooms are pretty popular right now, and next month there's a free virtual summit focused on all things fungi. The Fantastic Fungi Summit will be hosted by Louis Schwartzberg. He directed the 2019 film Fantastic Fungi, and that's when I first asked him about his fascination with mushrooms. Mycophiles, people who love mushrooms, are prominent in this film. There's a huge subculture of mycophiles, of people who are fascinated with mushrooms. They're sort of bloated pleasure seekers with a scientific bent. You know, really my kind of crap. Mushrooms actually were the window by which I came to understand nature in a deeper way. That science and food writer Eugenia Bone. Louis, are you a mycophile? I am a mycophile. I'm a mycophile primarily because I love the way they look when they grow in time-lapse. I've been, you know, pioneering time-lapse for almost 40 years. So when you can see a flower open or a mushroom grow, it definitely, you know, expands your horizons and opens your heart. And let's talk about those time-lapse videos of mushrooms growing because they're really central to this documentary. Is there something difficult about filming fungi in particular on time-lapse? Yeah, it's really hard to shoot mushrooms, uh, much more difficult than shooting flowers or plants because you don't exactly know like where they're going to pop up. They need more of a controlled atmosphere. They need more CO2. They need a certain amount of humidity, and they're totally unpredictable. Um, I like the fact that they're rebellious, and they have an attitude, and they are um, kind of like, you know, um, they're mysterious, you know, they, they pop up where you don't expect them, if you're like foraging for mushrooms, for example. So they, they like being little hidden creatures. <laughs> I like that idea of a rebellious mushroom. Yeah. Uh, how do you go about finding the mushrooms that you're going to film or cultivating them? What is that process like? Well, in truth, most of the mushrooms that I filmed were done indoors because we have to have a controlled environment with lighting, with wind, and also nobody stealing your camera if you're going to be doing a shot that may take four weeks. So it's all done in a controlled environment. We build a small little set, you know, mini stage. And um, we pray that the mushrooms will pop up and stay in focus. And are there moments that you're really proud of capturing in this film? Oh, absolutely. Um well, anytime I can get a time-lapse mushroom, I'm proud. Yeah, there's a certain amount of failure. Maybe we get one out of five. Um, but there's a lot of magic moments in this film, I think, that um, are one of a kind. And um, either they make you fall in love with mushrooms or they freak you out. Either way, I think it grabs your attention. One that really stood out to me is you have these moments of decomposition. Could you tell me about that? Right, so... Mushrooms are either maybe the end of life or the beginning of life, depending on how you're looking at it. And um, so decomposition can be creepy to some people, but the reality is when elements are broken down by the fungal network, they become the elements for new life. Um, we did film some things like, you know, bugs decomposing. There's a classic shot of the mouse decomposing. But what's beautiful about it is then you see, you know, these little sprouts come up around the skull and... To me, it's a very inspiring celebration of life. It's the beginning of life. How long did it take you to film a decomposing mouse? Probably about four weeks. It, it didn't smell great. Um, I've, I've shot decomposing uh, pumpkins, um, things rotting. We have a lot of rotting peaches. We have rotting raspberries. It's kind of beautiful. 
<laughs> Fungi are pretty complex organisms. This documentary deals quite a bit with mycelium. What's the relationship between mycelium and mushrooms? So mushrooms are the reproductive organ of mycelium. Mycelium is the organism that lives under the ground. It's kind of like a tree in an apple. So the mycelium is the tree, the mushroom is the apple. To represent mycelium in your documentary, you use a lot of computer-generated images. What did you want to capture with those moments? Well, everything in the film is real except for the mycelium network under the ground. We, we take it all the way to the edge of shooting with a microscope of mycelium growing in the Petri dish. But then beyond that, for me to shoot the mycelium underground, which is only one cell thick and it's like zero light, well, what we did was we used scanning electron microscopic photographs as references, and then we had animators animate it in this branching networking pattern, which we were able to observe from the shots we did in the Petri dish. So I find it to be scientifically accurate, and it was the only way to tell the story was to use computer-generated animation. And so I think that being able to take people underground and seeing the fact that it's all connected is powerful. As you weave this story, you also weave in a message about climate change, but yeah. it is actually a very hopeful one. What mm. is it? Well, one of the things I never knew about the fungal network is the fact that it could be the greatest natural solution for climate change. And we do this incredible shot, a single shot that lasts over a minute, where we see a CO2 molecule going into the pore of a leaf, oxygen being released. We all know that oxygen comes from plants. But the carbon atom actually travels down the branch, the trunk of the tree, into the roots, and then the tip of the roots is transferred into the mycelium network, which is a shared network under the ground where nutrients are shared between trees and plants. So the trees may give the mycelium the carbon and sugar. The trees may be getting nitrogen, phosphorus. It's a beautiful metaphor, a shared economy under the ground, not based on greed, allowing ecosystems to flourish. And then you realize that a forest is a community not a bunch of individual trees. When it relates to climate change, it's this idea that mushrooms and fungi are actually a part of trapping carbon beneath the ground. Exactly. It's the way nature sequesters carbon under the ground. So what have we done? We dig up coal and oil, we burn it, kick it up into the atmosphere. Nature's way is being able to absorb CO2, bring it back underground and sequester it for thousands of years. And when a new plant or tree needs to grow and it needs carbon, there it is, stored underground, ready to be used. Your documentary also features people. A guy named Paul Stamets is a key character. My mission is to discover the language of nature of the fungal networks that communicate with the ecosystem. If we don't get our act together and come in commonality and understanding with the organisms that sustain us today, not only will we destroy those organisms, but we will destroy ourselves. He doesn't hold an advanced degree, but he has been studying mushrooms on his own for nearly five decades. And he has a business cultivating and selling mushrooms. Why do you want people to know him? And how did you get connected with him? I first heard Paul Stamets do a presentation about 13 years ago at a Bioneers conference, which is all about biomimicry. And it really inspired me because I was, you know, at that time working on the film about pollinators. Um, I showed him some of my time-lapse mushrooms on my laptop, and, and we bonded. I used Paul because he's a bit of a maverick. You know, he didn't take the academic route and become, you know, a professor at a 
you know, academic institution where the name of the game is really getting grants that are supported by Big Pharma. So he's been able to be independent in the research that he does. He's an entrepreneur where he created a business where he sells mushroom products. And it enabled him, I think, to be free in his thinking. And I think that he's a great role model for young people who want to be involved in science without having to think that they become part of a giant pharmaceutical company and that they can explore anything they want to explore. I imagine that making this film was so much of a research and learning process for you. What were you really excited to learn about fungi? Everything. I mean, the greatest takeaway for me is learning that communities survive better than individuals, that communities are being connected under the ground like the internet. And I never thought that that was going to be my giant takeaway at the end of the movie, but in the social, political times we're living in, we need to connect with each other face to face. And you really go into this in those poetic interludes throughout the documentary that Brie Larson narrates from the perspective of fungi. We are on a never-ending search for partners. Life-affirming relationships. Or at the very least, nourishment for the next leg of our journey. We have flourished side-by-side with your species, symbiotically, for centuries. It kind of goes to this idea that you hit on quite a bit in the film, that humans as a species could be more resilient if they understand fungi better? I think people need to appreciate nature's intelligence, and I'm telling this particular story through the viewpoint of the mushrooms. I love to take people on journeys through time and scale. I like to make the invisible visible. And all I'm doing is channeling nature's intelligence. And that blows your mind as well as opening your heart. And then you understand everything, I think, in a deeper way. So I think it's a kind of a cool judo move. People may show up to this movie and go, oh, it's a movie about mushrooms. But at the end, it's about elevating consciousness. And I want to be able to grab people's attention with beauty, not with, you know, negativity, not with conflict, not with being gross. Time-lapse mushroom, you may not have seen the girl before, but this is reality. And I think we need to be grounded in nature's intelligence and the patterns and rhythms. And I'm just putting it out there as truth. It's science. It's real. And the fact that we can kind of do a, a takeaway that it's all connected Well, that's really helpful to know, I think, from an environmental point of view, sociological point of view, and political point of view. Louis, thank you so much for having this conversation. Honored to be here. And thank you, Colorado, for spreading the spores of wisdom. Louis Schwartzberg is the director of Fantastic Fungi. We spoke in 2019. Next month, he hosts the Fantastic Fungi Summit, a free virtual gathering that explores the world of mushrooms. We'll put a link to it in the Colorado Matters podcast. Finally today, a Crested Butte native who grew up going to bluegrass festivals and became an acoustic musician in his own right. Who's that rotten John the Revelator? Who's that rotten John the Revelator? Who's that rotten John the Revelator? Right down the seven seas. Jackson Melnick's debut album is called Abilene. It features a stellar lineup of studio musicians for which Melnick credits his producer, Christopher Henry. 
I have Christopher to thank for that. I don't know necessarily if the geniuses on the record were doing it because they liked the song or they owed Chris a, a favor. I'm not sure I want to know, but I'm glad they're on there because they sound great. Aside from making new music, Melnick's been busy getting masters in social work. He'd like to help bring down the high suicide rates in farming communities. And that issue is at the heart of the track, Trouble. music video for Trouble was filmed on a farm near Woodstock, New York. There are sheep, llama, horses. I did get thrown off a horse at one point. I was just stupid, you know, trying to ride bareback on a horse. I think there's a cut in there of me getting on the horse that, you know, me falling off is cut off. Trouble, trouble, it don't matter if it's coming or going. Trouble, trouble, it don't matter. Many of the songs on Abilene predate COVID, but the pandemic gave Jackson Melnick time to finesse the tracks and head back into the studio. I found that I had more space to be very, very focused on my best performance and delivering my best performance. And I was able to bring a lot more energy to them, which they were definitely asking for. So the quarantine was was great for that. I look back at that time now and obviously I'm glad I made a record and I also wonder how much of that time could have been spent just enjoying being with somebody else or enjoying watching the world pass silently. I mean, I just wonder for all of us if we'll ever have that kind of permission again in our lives and I chose to fill it up with art so I hope that people you know, appreciate what I've done that would help make it feel worthwhile for sure. Singer-songwriter and Crested Butte native Jackson Melnick. His debut album, Abilene, is out now. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Megan Verlee. We'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters, or send an email to coloradomatters at cpr.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 